Hello and welcome to the Eclectic Cornucopia, the debut episode of all things esoteric, paranormal, conspiratorial, you name it. Thanks for stopping by. I'm your host, Will Graham. First episode tonight, our debut episode, we're going to kind of do a brief summation of the Paul is Dead conspiracy. So hopefully you'll stick around and uh, let's get to it. In 2005, I started to pay attention to some things that didn't quite seem right. Now, I'll preface this by saying that I used to be a musician at one time. Not currently, but I used to be a pretty good guitarist and bass player. And I played in many bands. My genre of music was rock and punk rock. So, I I would learn a lot by watching and observing other musicians. Uh, whether it was trying to find tips and tricks and techniques, um, whether it was guitar or bass, I I was always very observant with with other musicians. Paul McCartney is one that I would have called my favorite bassist at the time, especially one of them. Uh, but something strange happened there. Now, usually, usually. In a musician's life, they play an instrument and they get better at it. You know, just just uh, putting in your thousand hours, you uh, you you're going to get better at anything you practice at and have passion for. So, I I noticed that even myself, I was a way better bass player than when I started. I was a way better guitarist than when I started. But I've always noticed that my favorite Paul McCartney written bass, you know, his songs that he wrote and his bass lines and his vocals were the stuff from 1963 to 66. And then from 66 on, flat. Not not an inspiring musician. Not an inspiring bass player anymore. So then it got me curious. Not only have was I comparing, you know, albums like Rubber Soul and Revolver to Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road and noticing a huge talent drop off in the bass, uh, I, I started to listen a little closer. I started to watch videos. started to watch that Paul McCartney from 1963 to 66 was an effortless virtuoso with the bass guitar. He would play with a pick or he'd play with his fingers. He was very versatile for a left-handed bass player. He was a virtuoso. He didn't look at his fretboard when he played. He was so confident and comfortable with his instrument, he just played it, knew where his fingers were by muscle memory. You know, there's there's many of musicians that even, you know, that have played for years but still have to check where their fingers are. Well, it was obvious that Paul was a gifted bass player and very comfortable. And a perfect example of some of his bass, great bass work is on Taxman on the album Revolver. Pop that in and give it a listen. During the interlude, it's only two bars, but this bass line he throws in after the first chorus is just amazing. And you can tell it's just one of those organic things that he just invented then. And uh, that those kind of bass lines just cease to exist on Sgt. Pepper and on. That bo- that always bothered me, and I always kept it in the back of my head, at how can one of my favorite musicians be amazing 
and then just fall flat. Well, so I started looking into it and paying attention a little more. So then maybe around 2010, 2012, I come across a documentary on Netflix called Paul McCartney Really Is Dead, The Last Will and Testament of George Harrison, the Beatles' lead guitarist. And what it was is, I think it was in the late 90s, or yeah, I think it was in the, in, in the late 90s, uh, George Harrison had contracted uh, lung cancer, but a crazed fan broke into his house and stabbed him over 40 times. Fearing for his life, supposedly he recorded a last will and testament and sent the tapes to a production company to have them make this into a movie, a documentary, after his death. So, it, it basically what it did is it explained how in 1966, the Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, after their last American tour, they came back and... While recording at Abbey Road Studios, um, you know, there's there's different accounts, but basically Paul left kind of jaded a little bit and his head was was full of, he had a lot of pressure. Um, he was supposedly had to write like eight songs for the new album in a very short amount of time. And so he left kind of feeling dejected and... And uh, the story from the Paul Really Is Dead documentary states that he got in his car, which was a, I think it was a red Aston Martin, but doesn't matter. It was an Aston Martin. He got in it and it was a rainy night. He left and seen a hitchhiker, picked her up. She, after noticing who he was, um started flipping through the radio dial trying to find one of his songs and it distracted Paul to where he didn't see that the light had turned red and he went through an intersection and was T-boned by a truck sending the Aston Martin careening into a light pole and decapitating Paul. Um, there's, There's two different versions I've heard about this whether, which it's not, you know, I'm trying to stay away from the minutia, but so, and the girl who was with him, I've heard she's either died in the car or she was paid to, for her silence. So that evening, and it's supposedly November 11th or November 9th, I'm sorry, of 1966, the, uh, the Beatles were notified and, that Paul was dead and fearing that there would be mass suicides of young girls all around the globe was a, was a legit fear. Uh, these, you know, Paul wasn't just an amazing musician. He was the cute one. He was the one that girls loved. He was a very funny guy, very quick witted, uh, very smart, very intelligent. So he would, um, and very beloved by his bandmates, uh, Paul is love is what they uh, would say, but he died. And of course, fearing um, mass suicides, they replaced him with a clone and going by the DV or, or by the documentary, uh, he, the clone underwent 
a lot of plastic surgery to look like Paul. His name was Billy Shepard. Uh, he went on to... He was a musician in his own right before the Beatles. And he joined the Beatles and, you know, whether you love him or hate him, he helped the Beatles stay on the map. Only, you know, Sgt. Pepper is considered one of the most revolutionary albums, at least in the 1960s. <laughs> it is till this day, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm a big fan of it. But that Paul still underwent plastic surgery. And he, he eventually, uh, the rest of the Beatles being so heartbroken, that was, they went on a vacation to India to try to get Paul, the real Paul, soul, to go into the imposter Paul's body. And the John, George, and Ringo would refer to the fake Paul as Fall, Fall McCartney. So they, you know, that he was the false Paul. And they weren't big fans of him, and they eventually wanted nothing more to do with being in the band anymore, so they had the last album, Let It Be. And I believe it was under the three original Beatles, I think it was in their mind that after this, Paul would be gone and he would cease to exist because there would be no Beatles. But that Paul, <laughs> he went on to form Wings and that further upset the Beatles the remaining Beatles, John, Paul, and George, or John, George, and Ringo. Huh, got those guys mixed up. So, then we go to a book that I read. I started reading Billy's Back by Thomas Uharriet in December. And it's about a 500-page book that I read, and it was, it was great. But and which led me to read another book called The Memoirs of Billy Shears by Thomas Harriet. Now, this is when things get even weirder. Now, this is a book that was written by, encoded by Thomas Harriet, but supposedly written by the imposter Paul because he's getting older in age and he wants to get his story out. Now, it's a very compelling book. Sometimes the the you know, the hidden symbolism they hid behind albums gets a little ridiculous. And he doesn't come off as a very, <laughs> as a very humble person. And some of the things I don't agree with in there, but it is a very good book. And I, it's at, it's on Amazon. I highly recommend you going and picking it up. It's definitely a good read, but it goes a lot further into the documentary. I, that just kind of skimmed through it you know this went deep 666 pages it is it it has all of these different ways to read it it's but down to the brass tacks this starts to get very in-depth and before we go there let's take a quick break and i'll be back to explain the memoirs of billy shears All right, welcome back. It's Will again with the Eclectic Cornucopia podcast. Thanks for sticking around. Hopefully you didn't run out on me. 
But I wanted to go ahead and tell you a little bit more about this Paul McCartney Really Is Dead documentary. It is. It was directed by Joel Gilbert. And I'll go ahead and I'll read the back here. Just to give you a little synopsis of what I was saying. But it says, in the summer of 2005, a package arrived at the Hollywood offices of Highway 61 Entertainment from London with no return address. Inside were two mini-cassette audio tapes dated December 30th, 1999, and labeled The Last Testament of George Harrison. A voice identical to Harrison tells a shocking story. Paul McCartney was killed in a car crash in November of 1966 and replaced with a double. British intelligence, MI5, had forced the Beatles to cover up McCartney's death to prevent mass suicides of Beatle, fan, of Beatle fans. However, the remaining Beatles tried to signal fans with clues on album covers and in song. Until now, the Paul is Dead mystery has exploded worldwide in 1969 was considered a hoax. However, in this film, George Harrison reveals a secret Beatle history chronicling McCartney's fatal accident, the cover-up, dozens of unknown clues, and, and a dangerous cat-and-mouse game with Maxwell, the Beatles' MI5 handler. As John Lennon became increasingly reckless with the secret, Harrison also insists that Lennon was assassinated in 1980 after he threatened to finally expose Paul McCartney as an imposter. Hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Highway 61 Entertainment has corroborated most of George Harrison's stunning account of the conspiracy to hide McCartney's tragic death. Harrison's complete audio tapes narrate this film that includes all the newly unearthed evidence. The last testament of George Harrison may prove to be the most important document of rock and roll history, leaving little doubt that Paul McCartney really is dead. Alright. And I believe that this documentary is also on Amazon Prime, and I saw it originally on Netflix. And it's, uh, you know, it's about a 95-minute uh, video. I highly recommend you taking a look, even if you're on either side of the camp, whether you believe he was replaced by an imposter or you don't, that's fine. I found that this conversation can kind of elicit one of two types of uh, reactions when you talk to people about the Paul is Dead conspiracy. And it's one of those things that you really have to know your facts, but there really is no definitive facts that you can throw at somebody. And it, it, people either get very interested or they get very angry. And I've kind of found that maybe it has to do generationally. That maybe, you know, older people that can remember a time in their youth that they can attach to the Beatles' music. Maybe they get a little more angry to think that their beloved Paul might have been a fraud or might have been, you know, impersonated. Or... Again, you can be curious about it and want to learn a little more, but it is a rabbit hole. It is something that you can fall deep in. And there's a lot of really good uh, YouTube uh, channels out there that are dedicated to Paul is Dead and also the esoteric. Um, one of my favorites is the Sage of Quay, Mike Williams. Just, you know, Google search him or search him up in, uh, on YouTube. His channel is very definitive and he gets very, very deep in the memoirs of Billy Shears book. Now, I I won't get as in-depth as he does on this episode right now, but I will talk a little bit about it because as we talk, I am on page 
129 of 666 pages. And I have the 9 after 909 edition of the Memoirs of Billy Shears by Thomas E. Uharriet. Um, this book basically is it's written by Paul McCartney and encoded by Thomas E. Uharriet. It is it tells everything kind of basically that the Paul McCartney really is dead documentary. Uh, you know, that kind of whets your appetite, but if you want to go down the rabbit hole even further, this book is where you go. Now, there's been editions added to this, and this is the latest edition, and this edition has a bunch of footnotes in it, and there's a lot of very interesting footnotes in here, um, because I guess in the previous editions of Paul McCartney or Billy Shears in this Billy Shears was wanting to, you know, kind of clarify some things. And there's a lot of Masonic uh, references, and we'll get all into that later. But let's just kind of do a brief synopsis so we know that this book exists, and it is one of the tomes of vast information when it comes to Paul is Dead. So the reason being is because it's written by Paul himself supposedly. And it's interesting when you start looking into this book and the writer and coder Thomas O'Harriet and how they're both Masons, how Paul or, or Billy Shears is a Mason. And there is a lot of Masonic references. There's a lot of uh, societal references to, to um, you know, the Tavistock Institute, which was a uh, a social engineering and research uh, think tank in England. And uh, we'll get more into that. But uh, it basically goes into how Billy was brought up and uh, trained to basically not take the place of Paul, but be somewhere in that kind of a position that he's in now. It just so happened that he had the chops, he had the musical ability to take over, and he was willing to do the everything it took to be Paul. So so in this book, it 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 reveals a lot of interesting stuff. It reveals that his father is Aleister Crowley, which is very interesting because um which goes it can go <laughs> this thing is an octopus with many tentacles more than eight, but they're stretching everywhere and they're getting into everybody's, you know, it's, it's sticking its little grubby fingers in everybody's pies. So there's, there's so much information packed in this book. It goes from his father was Aleister Crowley and that he was taught to, to, to learn how to speak backwards and how to listen to music backwards and, you know, and just how it, how he was, raised to to be something and he was positioned to be in a place of power which supposedly he's a very high-ranking mason and he is Paul McCartney is one of the richest men on planet earth now let's think about that too for a second that's one of the biggest arguments that I hear people say all the time is <laughs> is it's too big of a conspiracy it's way too big there'd be so many people involved well, think about it for a minute. How much do you think one Paul McCartney live concert right now 
How much do you think Paul McCartney as a corporation, as a business entity, how much do you think he rakes in from the seats, you know, okay, tickets, the merchandising, um, you know, he probably clears a couple million maybe from one show, you know, so, and how many people does it take to employ to set everything up? Hundreds. So, and then you think about that's just the live portion of it. So the Paul McCartney name employs many people and there's a lot of money that would be left on the table if he was to just come out and say, listen, I'm not really Paul, I'm an imposter. You think about him as a, as a studio musician. Well, his albums still sell. I actually am a fan of his latest album. And uh, he's, it, how many engineers, how many, how many sound people in, in mixing, mastering, everything. All of those people, they're all employed. And they all cannot risk having Paul come out and say, listen, this is the truth. So that's my opinion when it comes to people saying it's too big. Well, conspiracies are big. And when it comes to money, especially the kind of money you're talking about with Paul McCartney touring and as a studio musician, people will, will kill for that kind of money. And I believe in this conspiracy they have. I mean, let's go back to the mid-60s. Let's start in 1965. And we can go right down the list. There's a long trail of dead people left behind in the Paul McCartney saga here. A lot of people. You, we can start right from uh, Brian Epstein. But that's starting kind of late because we can go back. There's Stuart Sutcliffe. He was a Beatle, the first bassist. Brian Epstein. Stein, Brian Epstein, however you want to say his name. And, you know, it just keeps on, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be people in the Beatles, but it's people surrounding them. Uh, Badfinger, the poor guys in Badfinger, John Hamm, you know, he committed suicide, uh, you know, and they were signed on to Apple Records. Um, you know, they're uh, Mal Evans, <laughs> uh, John Lennon, you know, the list goes on, George Harrison. Goes on and on. The only one was Ringo, and I think that was probably because he thought to stick, you know, I'm going to stay in line here. I'm not an idiot, you know. So I think he was just kind of laid low and did his did his own deal. So it, it really doesn't matter what side of the camp you're on. This is just all about trying to make an interesting conversation and argument out of Something that I've noticed a long time ago and still kind of see and notice to this day. Even on my own, when I look on YouTube at just Paul videos, one of them that's very interesting to me is the press conference from 1966 in August they did in L.A. And it was, they're wrapping up their tour and they are just kind of, you know, they're a little road hard by this time because they've already done some rough shows. This is just after John Lennon made his They're Bigger Than Jesus statement. So they were getting a backlash in America. In fact, you can tell that the guys are kind of scared during this press conference. They look nervous. They talk about having to be driven to the venues in armored cars and uh, how 
their plane was getting shot at. So they were nervous and they were scared. So after that tour and when they got back is so from August when they got back to England, they announced they weren't touring any, any longer. And so in between that press conference and December, something happened. And that's when they believe that Paul died or Paul was killed. Something happened to Paul and Paul was replaced. Now, Billy Shepard is Billy Shears and who the imposter was. He had known Paul. He was a member of Denny Lane and the Diplomats. Now, Denny Lane, he's a guitarist, a great musician in his own right. He played with the Moody Blues he started out with, and then he went on to play with Paul and Paul McCartney and Wings. So, but he started out playing guitar as Phil Acryl with Denny Lane and the Diplomats. Now, ironically, there was Bev Bevins started in, he was the drummer for the Diplomats, and he went on to be the drummer for ELO, Electric Light Orchestra. But I, I, I did a little searching on Denny Lane and the Diplomats, and you won't find any any audio, There's or, or you won't find any video. You'll find audio. And they just sound like your typical, you know, early 60s Merseyside band, you know, that they they were decent. But I found, uh, I found an article in the Melody Maker from England, and it's giving a spread about Denny Lane and the Diplomats. And it has each member of the band, uh, kind of a kind of a, a teeny bopper girl type of a pinup type things that tells about each member of the band. And there's Phil Ralston, which that is Phil Acryl, and there's Bev Ralston. Both are from Birmingham. Both went to the Mosley uh, Grammar School. Both have the same last names. Is the imposter for Paul, Phil Acryl, is his brother, Bev Bevins, from ELO. Can we trace Bev Bevins' genealogy back and maybe find out that he had a brother named Phil Ralston, a, who later changed his name to Phil Acryl, who later changed his name to Paul McCartney. Now, those are very interesting, very minute details that we will get into because from Phil Acryl, he went on to be Paul McCartney and while simultaneously being part of what was called the, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band or just the Bonzo Dog Band. And this was an avant-garde. So, so the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band was an avant-garde type of musical genre, which is, it is a, a theatrical performance. Um, and a lot of the music, ironically, you can see as a precursor to what they did with Sgt. Pepper. Sounds, a lot of the things sound that far out with what the Beatles did on Revolver until Sgt. Pepper kind of fills that gap. So the Bonzo Dog Duda Band was led by Vivian Stanchel, which was another uh, alter ego of Paul McCartney. He had Phil Acryl slash Phil Ralston, and then he was Paul McCartney, 
and uh, then at the same time, he was Vivian Stanchel. They had a, you know, ironically, Paul McCartney produced a lot of the Bonzo's music. Um, he, he, they also the Bonzo Dog Duda Band. They also performed a song on the Magical Mystery Tour movie, and it was called Death Cab for Cutie, which is supposedly written about Paul's death, his demise on that cold morning. So that band <clears throat> is actually pretty good. You know, they're, it's, it's, it's a different form of music, but they have a lot of videos on YouTube you can check out. And supposedly with the, you know, work of makeup, latex and wigs he was able to have different appearances and that was one of his vivian stanchel was one of his one of his personalities one of his on-stage personas so which i said you can also hear a lot of the precursor to sergeant pepper in there so this gets very very in-depth and it goes through his stint as Vivian Stanchel and his Paul McCartney, but I'll go ahead and read a little bit of the of the uh, of what this book is about. It says in this memoirs, Billy William Shepard shows how and why he received the role of Paul McCartney in the Beatles. The switch the switch moved the band into a new musical direction and guided the world into a social revolution that continues today. William explains what drove his unparalleled success and how his Paul role tormented him and each of his Beatles bandmates. This inside look from the perspective of Billy Shears gives us details that we've never seen in print um, in this fully encoded monumental work of historical fiction. Now that is another interesting caveat. This, is, this book is historical fiction. Now in order for, for Paul, you know, Paul now or fall, in order for fake Paul, to not be uh, indicted on uh, breaking his contract uh, without all the legalities and the litigation of saying, coming right out and saying, hey, I'm Paul McCartney. He has to add a small amount of fiction in this historical biography in order for him to not get in trouble for spilling the beans. He's contractually obligated, so he cannot just come out and say it. Like I said, there's a lot of money on the table, a lot of people would change their name for the millions that he makes. He is not above that, <laughs> believe me. And in the back of the book, it tells, you know, it says Paul McCartney, and it gives a little blurb on him, and it gives a little blurb on Thomas E. Harriet, which is the author. It says, the memoirs encoder created the world's longest acrostic, which you'll see because there's many ways to read this book. There's On each page, there's emboldened words that are sentences in their own. And like I said, there's also uh, a lot of footnotes in this uh, in this edition. So it says Thomas E. O'Harriet is uh, Williams important. Let's see, and other books O'Harriet breaks the codes of ancient messages by Jesus, Krishna, and Lao Tzu and Hung Po. So he is an encoder. Paul McCartney wrote this, but like I said, some people will will have that argument. Why won't he just come out and say it? Why is that under historical fiction? Well. He's not ready to give up on those millions yet. But a lot of people believe that this 9 after 909 edition, okay, this is nine years after the edition that came out 
in November of 2009. So this is nine years after, and it he is getting ready. You know, he's getting older. Paul, it, he would be 83. The imposter Paul was five years older than real Paul. So he's older. He can't tour anymore. And from what I hear, his live shows are really suffering. His voice can't hold the same pitch anymore. Can't hit those highs. And so it's this seems to be his last will and testament, ironically. So we'll go into that more into the book, but we're going to go back to the start on my next episode of this podcast. We're going to go back. We're going to start in 1965, and we're going to see all the intricate differences, things that I think are pertinent. Not everything, because some things I don't think are pertinent, but we're going to go, and we're going to start from the beginning, and we're going to take a look, come up with the satisfactory conclusion. But some people have tried and have still never done it. I don't expect to, to, to solve the puzzle just to give a, a satisfying conclusion, self-conclusion. That's all, you know? <laughs> We're not here to break down the fifth wall. We're just here to look at it. So, on the next episode, we will get into more of the stuff from 1965 and move on. Personally, I think Paul wasn't in a car accident. I believe he was killed, but we'll get into that later. Thanks again for stopping by. Hope you enjoyed the debut episode of The Eclectic Cornucopia, and I hope you stop back by. We'll see you then.